ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. When we feel better, we do better. That simple message is what Feel Better with Tara Styles is all about. We share informative, inspiring, and healing conversations with respected leaders whose work embodies the action of making our world a better place. We also share simple practices based in meditation, tai chi, and gentle yoga that are a relief to breathe along with, whether you have time to stretch out on the ground or you're busy getting ready for your day. Settle in and enjoy learning something new that will surely support your well-being, inspire your creativity, and help you feel a whole lot better. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hello, listeners. I'm Amy McKinnon, national security reporter at Foreign Policy and your host of Foreign Policy Playlist. Each week, we help you make sense of the crazy number of podcasts out there by recommending one podcast from somewhere around the world. This week, I'm featuring a new series by Project Brazen and PRX called Fat Leonard. It tells the story of an explosive corruption scandal which is still being investigated by the US Navy. For the first time, hear from the man at the center of the scandal, the defense contractor Leonard Francis, who describes how he bribed Navy officers with money, prostitutes, and fine luxuries for multi-million dollar deals to protect and supply the US Navy's 7th Fleet. In just a minute, we're going to play the first episode of the series. But first, I spoke to the Fat Leonard host and co-creator, Tom Wright. Leonard Francis, or Fat Leonard, uh, was at the center of this multi-million dollar corruption and bribery scheme, which drew in huge swaths of the U.S. Navy operating in the Indo-Pacific. He was arrested in 2013, but this is the first time that he's really sat down to give his side of the story. Why now? What do you think persuaded him to talk at this moment? Leonard Francis had had done this great job for the Navy as a contractor for, for many, many years. And, you know, he, he believed that uh, he, when he was arrested in 2013 in San Diego, that he was a scapegoat, that the Navy knew about the corruption that had gone on under his, under his watch when he was, mm. uh, you know, providing food, fuel and security to the Navy. Um, he says that the top admirals in the fleet knew what was going on. They knew that he was overcharging, but he was doing a good job. You know, there were no other contractors in the, in the Pacific who could do what Leonard was doing in terms of protecting the fleet, especially after the USS Cole attack uh, in 2000 in, uh, in Yemen. And so he's sitting there since 2013. He pleads guilty in 2015. And, and he's, he's sick of waiting around. And he hasn't been sentenced. He's pleaded guilty, but he hasn't been sentenced yet. And the reason for that is that he's a star witness in the trials of seven other Navy officers who have pleaded not guilty. So the whole thing's become a total mess. And he was, uh, he just wanted to get his side of the story out to somebody. Um, the other factor is that he's dying of, of kidney cancer. He's sick. Um, I don't know exactly how sick, but he was often, you know, looking shaved head as if he's undergoing some kind of Gosh. chemotherapy. Mm. And so I think he, he, those things combined just made him want to get his side of the story out. 
I mean, so as you mentioned, Fat Leonard is a star witness in several cases that have yet to go to trial yet. I mean, how does that affect those cases? And have you heard from their lawyers at all? Yeah, so if you if you um, read in the San Diego Tribune, you'll see that the lawyers uh, for one of the seven officers who are uh, pleading not guilty have asked the court to subpoena the tapes. I think that court case has been very closely watched because it starts in February. Leonard is the star witness in the case. And he's, you know, he's um, he's going to be on the stand there for the prosecution for the government. And that's one reason why he's been, it's taken so long for him to be sentenced, because Leonard has to appear in court for that, for those trials before he can, before he himself can be sentenced. And those trials have wound on and on and on because uh, the government wanted to get guilty pleas. Mm. And, the, and some of the officers have changed their plea to guilty, but these seven are sticking with not guilty. And so... Um, everyone's very closely watching what's going to happen there. And I think one of the reasons those officers are not willing to plead guilty is they've looked at what's happened to admirals in this case. Mm. And many of the many senior admirals just got slaps on the wrist. You know, they just got what are called sensi letters, which were basically just administrative punishments. And many of them were able to retire at, with the same rank and and with full pensions. And so I think a lot of the officers, we, 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 we actually interview one of one of these officers, a commander who just got out of jail. And they're quite angry because they look at the time that they've done in jail and then they look at the, the senior ranks and how they've sort of got off. So that's what's going on. What was the phrase, the phrase that someone used in the in the podcast? Different spanks for different ranks. Yeah, different spanks for different ranks is, is, is a term in the Navy or I guess in the military for when a senior officer will get a different punishment than a, than a more junior officer, same allegation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we show that in episode nine. You know, we look at an admiral and we look at a commander and we, you know, we compare them and we, it's very hard to see the difference. And as I said, the commander himself is now looking to put in for a pardon after doing 18 months in jail because he's so furious about what he sees as his different spanks for different ranks. Mm-hmm. And Leonard talks very uh, extensively about this himself. He says, look, and again, this is another reason for him talking. He talks about how he gave all this evidence about his interactions with admirals, admirals that would change, you know, the course of boats for him so he could make more money at ports that he controlled or he could sell fuel, but that those admirals then, you know, didn't didn't really wind up getting much much of a punishment. Going back to the question of of why he may have decided to talk now, I mean, that's why certain people talk to journalists is, a, I think, a fascinating question and one I've asked myself a lot over the years. And I often come back to the the kind of conclusion that sometimes it's just attention. Do you think that that's a factor here? Because he was such a, or he is such a larger than life character. And you really get that sense for, for 20 years, he was at the center of this massive scheme and these outrageous parties. To what extent do you think that he just, you know, kind of got bored and, and missed the limelight a bit? Yeah, I think that's a really good uh, assessment of one of the other reasons he's talking, right? So I, we, we said earlier, he's talking because he feels like he's a scapegoat. He's dying. He's got nothing to lose. And I think that's a third reason. It's just, you know, someone who lives their life for so long at the center of something exciting. He was charging, you know, $5 million for one ship visit to India and then using that money to host, you know, Bacchanal and, and, and orgies. And he's recording, secretly recording these orgies with, with Navy officers and massive national security risk. And that's an exciting life, right? He's, he's living with 20 luxury cars in Singapore, Rolls Royces and militarized Hummers and living in 130 million dollar mansion in Singapore you know so suddenly he's living above his doctor's but in his doctor's house in in San Diego in house arrest and then in his own house when I was talking to him you know a tiny room or a couple of rooms uh, I think he was allowed into the park outside 
but yeah, if you listen to it, it's like sophomoric. He's recounting his his frat house days or something like that, right? Um, talking about these parties, mm. um, and he's laughing, and he's he's it's it's an escape for him. But then, you know, if you listen on, you'll also see that this story gets very dark very quickly as well. It's not all fun and laughter about remembering these orgies with navy officers. Since the podcast came out, I mean, has anybody has anybody reached out to you either from the Navy or, or from Navy Public Affairs as well? I was interested in, in, in what they kind of what their response to you was. We have a no surprises policy, which is you know you're not going to report anything in the podcast or in any of our stories where we don't give the subject of the, the the allegations full right to respond. So, you know, the Navy I sent a list of very very detailed questions to the Navy about every single element of this podcast. And you'll see we have long parts of the podcast where we read responses from admirals and others, um, especially in episode nine, you know, so we give full right of reply. But the Navy and the Department of Justice said, look, this is an ongoing litigation, so we're not going to comment. And, you know, to be honest, the Navy's been extremely lacking in transparency with the way it's dealt with this. We, ha we haven't actually, they have something called a consolidated disposition authority that is looking into giving out punishments. The more serious crimes, of course, are dealt with in the federal system by the Justice Department, but other crimes go to the... Uh, other allegations go to the, this consolidated disposition authority, and we don't even know what they've done since the middle of 2019. Mm -hmm. And so it's very hard to, it's very, very hard to know what's going on. And the Navy just says, well, look, we're not going to interact with you. This is ongoing. And I mean, I'm curious, you know, without giving, giving too much away, but this was obviously a very a, a long project to work on and obviously a very detailed one. And there's a lot of kind of twists and turns in the podcast. But was there something that surprised you when you came away from this that you didn't expect when you went into this project or something that you that you kind of learned or changed your mind on? Well, I think one of the things that's so fascinating about the Fat Leonard podcast is the roller coaster that you as a listener and and myself as a host went on in our relationship with Leonard. You know, he's a charming guy. He's a con artist, right? And so he's very easy to like and to enjoy talking to. And I spent, you know, 25 or so hours on basically on Zoom calls with him during the pandemic. We spent a lot of time getting to know him. And the thing that really surprised me is that he's not what he seems. If we put it, just put it like that. There are some very surprising developments later on in the series about his personal cruelties to women and his own family. And, and some of those elements come out later, which are shocking. And they feed into the overall theme of the podcast, which is about misogyny and, mm. you know, I wouldn't call it a Me Too podcast per se, because I feel like Me Too often has a sort of gotcha element to it these days. But the, the, the treatment of women in, in, in the Navy and in this story is extremely troubling. He seemed to kind of hone in on that as almost a kryptonite of the Navy, of this absolute Achilles heel to just pile on the, on the, on the metaphors here. But that was the way in to kind of drive his wedge in and, and, and get this blackmail and, and kind of get this, this clout and sway over, over very senior members of the Navy. Well, Leonard's defense of himself is that this is how it's always been in the Navy, right? Not, not just the sexual side, but also the, the corruption. You know, this corruption always existed on the docks. People always wanted backhanders for contracts. And that Navy, sailors, merchant seamen, and also, you know, military Navy, Navy officers always wanted sex. And that's something that they, that, that, that a contractor would always put on. But you know, it, it's very self-serving because what Leonard did is he, and we, we tell this through the story of Michael Mashevitz and Michael Mashevitz's wife, Marcy Mashevitz, you know, who pays a, a huge personal toll for her, her husband's corruption by Leonard. Leonard supercharged the system, this, you know, this idea of sailors going to port and they want to rape and pillage. And 
he, he supercharges it by, you know, having Mercedes Benz on the port uh, with the keys and the ignition with liquor in the trunk and a uh, bus full of prostitutes waiting, ready. Leonard had his own warship called the, the Braveheart and he would, when it wasn't going on Al-Qaeda missions, he'd have it stocked with alcohol and he'd bring prostitutes on board. One of the questions I had for myself was, well, why are these admirals going with prostitutes that a contractor is organizing? That's a huge national security risk and it's a risk for their careers. But I felt like Leonard was safe for them. And he was, mm. you know, he was always around the Navy and always offering these services. That was Tom Wright. And here now is the first episode from Fat Leonard. It's called Paper Ships. And just as a heads up, the series contains strong language and graphic descriptions of sexual assault, which some listeners may find distressing. Everybody has their needs. And, you know, I gave them that sense of confidence. And I also provided them what they wanted. And it was safe. And they could trust me. And I never let them down. You know, I played professional. I played sexual. Whatever you needed. Anything. Manila, 2007. The chauffeured Mercedes crawled south for half an hour in the interminable traffic. The turbid waters of Manila Bay on the right. The middle-aged men packed inside the cars were in an exuberant mood. Being warriors, you know, they've been at sea for such a long time. They're aviators, they're uh, nukes, they're uh, captains of ships. They've got this inner side of them that is a beast that needs to come out. So I understand that. Leonard Glenn Francis was taking out the senior commanders of the U.S. 7th Fleet. These were the most powerful Navy officers in Asia, and they controlled the movements of around 60 ships and submarines, 150 aircraft, and 20,000 sailors in a huge operational area stretching from Hawaii to India. The officers had helped Leonard's Singapore-based company, Glenn Defense Marine Asia, win a huge contract in the Philippines according to a grand jury charge that will go to trial early next year. He had to keep them sweet. We all went out. We went to Air Force One. Air Force One, a karaoke bar, is in a building that looked like an American strip mall, topped with a huge neon sign of a rising sun, a plane taking off in the foreground. The tropical heat was cloying, but the men moved quickly into the air-conditioned lobby and threw a curtain at the back. On the other side, Filipino women, many just students, sat in rows in a kind of fishbowl, identifiable not by their names, but by the numbers attached to their skimpy outfits. We went there and then uh, picked up a bunch of karaoke girls and we booked them out and brought them back. Leonard, six foot three, barrel chested and over 300 pounds. It's hard to place where he's from. He sounds American, except for when his accent slips a little. He's actually Malaysian and an ethnic mix. Scottish, Sri Lankan, and Portuguese. These guys are almost like, um, it's almost like they're rap stars or something. 
Oh, yeah. Well, more than that, probably, you know, like rock stars. They were living their life. I mean, living their dreams, you know, things that they'll never, ever, ever again do in their lifetime. Nobody would give him that kind of、uh, parties that I did. Always the ringleader, the big boss, or Lion King, to these Navy officers. Leonard dominated the outing. He'd peer closer. And you could sense an artifice in his behavior. I mean, I do get a buzz, of course. You know, I mean, I'll, I'll get drunk after drinking like ten bottles of wine and champagne. Yeah, I'll get, I'll get drunk. The after party was in the four thousand dollar a night MacArthur Suite at the Manila Hotel. Opened in 1912, it was General Douglas MacArthur's home and operational command during World War II. The men piled into the Spanish mission-style room with wooden ceiling beams, marble tiles. An ornate chandelier and heavily draped curtains. Leonard had stocked the suite with ten thousand dollar bottles of Dom Perignon. This is where he commanded the U.S. forces during the Battle of Manila. Yep, history. Yeah. Actually, the original hotel was destroyed during the war, but the two-bedroom suite was filled with MacArthur memorabilia. In the suite's study, two ornately carved wooden chairs. The only objects to survive the Battle of Manila stood in front of a desk. You know, they just start stripping and you know having sex right there. One of the men, quite drunk by now, opened a case on the desk containing a replica of MacArthur's famous corncob pipe, and grabbed a woman. The pipe was used as a dildo on the hooker that the Seventh Fleet was making a mockery of General MacArthur's memorabilia. <laughs> He's a historical figure, you know, and、uh, they totally desecrated him, insulted. <laughs> It was a mass orgy. That's how deep we were with the Navy. That's how close we were. We we're touching skins. So. <laughs> I'm Tom Wright, and this is Fat Leonard, a podcast from Project Brazen. I felt free at sea, and being in the ocean with the sea, the breeze, the wind, the smell, everything, give you this feeling of being a free person. I enjoyed it; made me relax. Penang, Malaysia, 1964. Leonard grew up around the port of Penang, a bustling harbor in Southeast Asia, where in earlier days trade in opium between India and China fueled huge fortunes. Leonard's grandfather, on his mother's side, Don Joseph, a Sri Lankan of Portuguese blood, ran a company that provided supplies like food, water, and fuel to merchant ships. Even in the 1960s, this was a world closer to the 19th century than today, with half-naked laborers carrying loads of wooden gangplanks into the holds of merchant ships from Britain, Greece, and elsewhere. My、uh, father and my grandfather used to take me down to the docks. And I used to observe all the Port Authority workers that used to work on the docks back then. Leonard was attracted to stories of powerful men. Yes, I was always very ambitious. Growing up, I always had a great ambition. You know,、um, 
I mean, there was three things that I've always wanted to be, you know, one was to be a shipping tycoon. And then the second part of me that I uh, truly uh, enjoyed was, of course, you know, I was a great fan of Elvis Presley. So I loved singing and entertaining. And the third was, of course, I was fascinated by the movie, The Godfather. Leonard got everything he dreamed of as a child and more. He built a billion dollar business supplying the US Navy with food, fuel, and security. But he was no mere contractor. He bribed Navy officers with Michelin star dinners, Cohiba cigars, $900 haircuts, luxury hotel stays, and prostitute after prostitute in order to win contracts and inflate invoices. Leonard infiltrated the Navy like a mafia don and built an empire that exceeded anything his young self could have imagined. What were you personally worth at the height of your powers? So, if you look at all my vessels, my ships, everything put together, properties, yeah. I mean, the port, I was worth you know, hundreds of millions, yeah. You were worth at least tens of millions of dollars. Yeah, but you know, um, if you look at it over the years, I mean, I would have accumulated billions in terms of revenue. Leonard had a flotilla of 180 boats, including his own warship, the Braveheart, protected by armed mercenaries, which he deployed to keep the US Navy safe. US embassies gave him diplomatic cover. He even took part in covert Navy missions against Al-Qaeda. Leonard was also a useful buffer, paying bribes to local authorities and allowing the US Navy to operate effectively. With so many Navy officers in his pocket, Leonard was able to move the world's largest warships into ports that he controlled, where he could charge more for food, fuel, and water, as well as protection. So what he had to do was the entire command, the chain of command, the command and control had to be in your pocket. And that's what happened. Everybody was in my pocket. I had them in my pocket. I was just rolling them around. <laughs> and then I could just move the carriers like, you know, uh, paper ships in the, in the water, nuclear-powered aircraft carriers, strike groups. And I could, like, put them in anywhere I wanted them to go. And that's how I could influence it. Because I could shift the ships around. The, I mean, that's just an amazing power that you had. Oh, yeah, I could do wonders. And then, you know, it was this, it just move the carriers. You know, this is a $20 billion ship, capital ships. You know, and I'm non-military. I'm just a civilian. I'm not a U.S. citizen. And I had that, that command over all these senior naval officers who would just snap on my command. Do this, and they'll move the ships for me. My God, it was like crazy. Like they were like coming in to take some drug lord. They came running in with guns blazing. San Diego, 2013. And then slam me against the wall, and then uh, 
put me on a chair, start frisking me, checking me, everything. Leonard was in a suite in the Marriott Hotel, preparing to discuss a new round of multi-million dollar contracts with the US Navy. Suddenly, a SWAT team barged into his room. Did you get angry? Yeah, in my heart I felt very upset, yes. Why was I being treated this way? There could have been a better way of doing this, you know? But you didn't resist arrest? Oh, no, no, no. What was there to resist? It's overwhelming force. I mean, I'm a big guy, you know, but it was overwhelming force of firepower. This is the so-called Fat Leonard case. Malaysian businessman Leonard Glenn Francis. Leonard Glenn Francis. Leonard Glenn Francis. Known as Fat Leonard. AKA Fat Leonard. Fat Leonard. Due to his 350 pound frame. Fat Leonard is a Malaysian citizen, but had a business in Singapore called Glenn Defense Marine Asia. The big man loved the big life from fast cars, women, and travel. He's very charming, he's very social. He he was a, a larger than life figure in many ways. What happened that day, eight years ago, upended Leonard's life. He spent years in jail, and now house arrest, and he's still awaiting his fate. I just felt very betrayed, to be honest with you. I don't think I deserve that, to be treated that way. Why are you treating me this way? You know, I've uh, been a loyal person, contractor, defense contractor, and... I've done a lot for the last 30 years, you know, supporting hundreds and not thousands of ships, hundreds of thousands of sailors and Marines, you know, in uh, all kinds of uh, places. I've never brought any harm to the United States. This was just a financial matter. It was not me hurting anybody. Nobody got hurt. There was no blood was spilled. Nobody was killed. Nobody was hurt. Prosecutors thought they had an open and shut case. The government expected to prosecute Leonard and a few Navy officers who had signed fake invoices in return for free holidays, gifts, or prostitutes. An embarrassing episode, perhaps, but the Navy could get back to protecting the homeland. Instead, Leonard found himself in the Metropolitan Correctional Center in San Diego across the table from prosecutors from the Justice Department, handcuffs on his wrists, his legs shackled like a murderer. And in that cold, sparse interview room, Leonard started to talk. And the tale he told about the Navy sent shockwaves through the defense establishment. Initially, I was the bad guy. You know, me, I was Mr. Bad. Look at what you did. You know, it was all my fault. (laughs) But... As the case rolled forward, you know, and the Navy was like pushing back because they didn't want to, they didn't want to clean house. They just wanted to like, you know, shove the, you know, like shove this all under the carpet. Let me take the, take the blame and a couple of other bad apples, you know, three or four. That a foreigner was so embedded with the Navy is one of the biggest national security failures in modern U.S. military history. Leonard was trusted with top-secret information 
ship and submarine schedules, and the position of ballistic missile defenses. And perhaps most extraordinarily of all, he was the keeper of the sexual secrets of the Navy's most powerful men and some women. And, you know, when I did explain everything, I think the investigators were shocked. They were like, what? And most of the investigators were female agents. And they were like getting so mad that these senior naval officers were behaving like this. It was shocking. <laughs> In that room, he named some of the Navy's most senior commanders. He had all kinds of compromising material on the most powerful people in the U.S. Navy. I'm telling you, I have my checklist. I made a good dossier <laughs> of everybody. What, like okay, a, a compromise? Oh, yeah, I do. I made my list of gifts. I made my list of whoremongers. I made my list of cash-receiving people. I broke it all down. I'm good at this. China is threatening the balance of power in the Pacific, and the U.S. bet on Leonard to meet this challenge. Instead, its dealings with him have rocked the Navy to its core. Beijing could never have inflicted this much damage. This is a story that will change the way you look at the U.S. Navy. A revered institution, it spawned movies and TV shows like Top Gun and NCIS. But this is a dark tale of alcoholic Navy officers, mediocre types, willing to sell out their country for tawdry sex. David Schaas, a former Navy officer who blew the whistle on Leonard but was ignored, says most of his colleagues knew what was going on. Many were too implicated or just too lazy to take action. Leonard was very good at influencing people, okay? If you were a guy that the most effective way to get you on his side was to buy a hooker and booze, then he'd buy you a hooker and booze. Prosecutors have indicted almost 30 Navy officers, including the first serving admiral to go to jail in US history, as well as Leonard and his staff. A new round of trials involving the officers in the MacArthur suite is set to start early next year. Here's Don Christensen, a former chief prosecutor of the US Air Force. I think it's going to shock uh, a lot of Americans and a lot of people in Congress uh, the extent to the depravity that the Navy has shown in Flat Leonard and the lack of uh, accountability for those who, who engage in that kind of conduct. None of the people that are involved are doing interviews, right? so there's nothing on television or you know, that you can pull up on the internet to look at. So I think that's part of the problem as well. So if Fat Leonard were to talk publicly about what was going on, that would change the dynamic, right? I mean, I don't know if he even has the possibility. I don't know his conditions of his confinement are. I've heard he's not in good health. I don't know if that's true or not. But... So Leonard, this is what I'm hoping is going to be the first of many recordings between us. Yes. What we want to do here, as we discussed in all of our other conversations that you and I have been having... In 25 years as a journalist, I've never had a relationship like the one I'm conducting now with Leonard Francis. And I've dealt with many fraudsters. I co-wrote the bestseller, Billion Dollar Whale, about Jolo, a con artist who allegedly stole billions and used the money to make the Wolf of Wall Street film by jewellery from Miranda Kerr and Picasso's for Leonardo DiCaprio. For over three years, Leonard's been under house arrest, living in a quiet area of San Diego, alone with his three children from two Filipina mistresses. 
Before that, he did four years in a San Diego prison, but he was allowed out after he was diagnosed with kidney cancer. He's closely watched. You got a bracelet, right? Yeah, yeah. I got a Uncle Sam Rolex, I call it. You know, one of my famous watches here. You can see, I don't know if you can see it, but I have one of my Rolex, diamond Rolexes here on my ankle here. When I was looking for my next project after Billion Dollar Whale, I came across Leonard's story and it fascinated me. When a Malaysian intermediary offered to put me in touch with Leonard, I jumped at the chance to learn more about him. For weeks, he was cagey, testing me out to see if I could be trusted. He'd already turned down requests from other reporters. The fact I've lived for years in Southeast Asia and my history with Malaysia helped kindle a bond between us. You tell me, if you look back on your life story, how would you construct it? Where would you start? I'm trying to put it all together in the perspective. Because, you know, I've had so many different um, chapters in my life. I've, I've more lives than cat. There's so many uh, different uh, times where I uh, personally had a lot of close death situations where I came back and survived. I've been trying to work out his motives for opening up to me. He has pleaded guilty and is a star witness in the ongoing cases of other Navy officers, many of whom have denied wrongdoing. His plea deal bars him from talking about the case, and he could face much more time in prison because of this podcast. One element could be that he's sick and so has nothing to lose. It's a huge risk for me to, you know, do what I'm doing. But I'm so upset with it. Well, I'm portrayed as the bad guy when I wasn't the bad guy. I did everything that they wanted me to do. I've lived my life. I've been up just close to heaven and down to hell. I've seen it all. So my legacy is important too. We're all going to die one day. And I only fear God. I don't fear nobody else. And of course, you know, I've got to face my judge one day, you know. And it's all in her hands, you know. That's about it. How many life sentences can you give me? One, two, ten. But you're angry that you're still waiting around, right? Well, being angry, what can I do? Do I have a choice? I don't have a choice. Where are you going to run? You can't run. So talking to me is basically one of the choices you do have, right? I mean, your well, choice talking to, to you is story. also, you know, like talking to a counselor, venting. <laughs> Along the way, Leonard will try to spin us. He's a confidence trickster after all. But he's also unburdening himself, enjoying telling stories of his corrupt past and reliving the times when he was Leonard the legend. That's why Uncle Sam loves me. The agents, uh, when they speak to me, they go, this is amazing. <laughs> this is an amazing story. You know, like, when I talk to them, it just comes out naturally. And I don't need to, like, refer to things. It's all here. That's what's kept me going is my mind. I have a very good mind, strong mind. I've survived. It's our job to work out where the truth ends and the lies begin. If the Navy would have charged every officer or admiral that were involved with me, the Navy would not have any more admirals than the Navy. Everybody would have been put away. We'll be right back after this break. 
Hey, my name is Coleman Hughes, and I'm the host of the podcast Conversations with Coleman. I think that the country is in flames already. We are headed toward the end of the American project. The ability to think and speak freely is what moves society forward, where I have honest, unfiltered conversations about the most pressing issues of our time. Our world is becoming more polarized. Partisan hatred has infected every sphere of life. You can be canceled for having opinions that depart from the consensus of a few social media. Join me every week on Conversations with Coleman as I challenge convention, question everything, and seek the truth with an open mind. Penang, 1977. We have to go back to the beginning to really get a handle on this crazy story. When I was 13, I was already six foot tall. I grew fast. I had sideburns when I was 13. <laughs> I had my little Elvis mutton chops. <laughs> Leonard was a hard child to manage. He joined a biker gang, and he didn't pay much attention to his studies. But he was smart and entrepreneurial. He made money collecting the runoff from tin mining and selling it to electronics companies, and soon was working for his father, supplying merchant ships. His father looms large in this story. When I was growing up, you know, we were having a lot of family issues because my father was uh, always having girlfriends. So he always had a second life out there. Leonard's father never fit in. His own father had come to Malaysia from Scotland to work on the rubber plantations and married locally. The plantations were a hard scrabble world of heavy drinking and backbreaking work in the stultifying heat. And Leonard's father sought escape in the British army and in the bottle. Posted to Singapore, he met Leonard's mother, left the army and took over his father-in-law's business. Young Leonard looked up to his father, but he got little in return. His father would take off to Europe on vacations with other women, leaving his family behind and doing little to further the business. Things were even worse when he was at home. Well, my mom was always the victim because, you see, my dad was very abusive. So I do understand why she left, because if she didn't leave, she probably would have. You know, my mom tried to OD a couple of times, you know, pills. She was, you know, traumatized by my father. Father was very violent. He was physically abusive? Oh, yeah. He was a very abusive man. Yes. So he beat her? Oh, yeah. He used to beat her. He was very violent. And yeah, the kids as well? Yeah. My dad is the beltless. It was terrible. So that was all the trauma we went through, you know, growing up around him. Soon, Leonard's family was torn apart. His mother fled to England with his brother and sister. Leonard opted to stay behind and help his dad run the business, an attempt to prove himself. But his father was lazy, and Leonard began to take a larger role in dealing with commercial ships. They're selfish. My dad had his own thing. My mom had her own thing. So everybody went their own way and just kind of left me in limbo, you know? And I kind of found my own way on the streets. Bereft of a family to guide him, Leonard would soon land in big trouble. Penang, 1985. Penang Island, near the border between Malaysia and Thailand, is a beguiling place, with old Chinese shop houses and white sand beaches that are popular with tourists. It also has a frontier feel. In the 1980s, pirates still attacked boats in the harbor, as they had for centuries. Heroin smuggling was rife. This was the rough world Leonard entered as a young man. He learned to operate in a corrupt port, paying bribes to captains for the right to supply merchant ships with food and water. The seamen 
burly and tattooed foreigners spent their time ashore in the bars and brothels of Penang, and Leonard began to accompany them. I used to go visit all these uh, clubs and massage parlors, and, and I saw that as an opportunity to entertain my clients again. These guys weren't exactly the best guys to hang out with because they kind of opened me up to all these, you know, red light districts. Leonard spent his nights in the bars and massage parlors of Penang, rarely sleeping. He plowed some of the profits from his business into his own bar, Tropicana. It became a hangout for triads, the Chinese mafia. When you have these kind of places, you need to have bouncers, and that's when the gangs start coming in. And then they start to try to control, and they start to try to extort. You know, then you get one gang to push the other gang out. And it, it starts getting very, very, very toxic. I was only like, I think 20, I was young. Soon, Leonard was in debt. And to get himself out of dire straits, he made a move that would color the rest of his life. He joined the triads in his club. Pop-faced young men, high on smack, blades tucked into the belts of their jeans in an armed robbery as a getaway driver. I was a good driver, so you know, I was always a crazy little driver, young kid. So I had to go rent a car. So dummy, young, dum-dum, went rented a car from budget rent-a-car. So I was like, okay, I'll go rent myself a Volvo, you know, the, back in the days with big bumpers and all that. So I kind of thought about it, shit, what if I get shot? So, well, I bought myself a bulletproof vest, full one, you know. Okay, let's do this. <laughs> and then, so the day came. Leonard sat behind the wheel in a Volvo across the street from a moneylenders. In the back, the triads, carrying pistols, dripping with sweat, smoked and argued. He questioned what he was doing there, a middle-class kid, but it was too late to back out. The plan was to steal from the moneylenders, like a bank robbery. Eventually, some men came out of the shop, carrying bulging bags of cash, dumped them into the trunk of a car, and sped off. So I was driving the car. So these guys are armed, you know, they had guns. So we drove, basically, you know, followed them from this shop on the way to the airport. You know, we went ahead and then we waited, or took and waited for them to pass us. And the, we saw an area where the road was pretty clear and then, you know, drove out and then uh, pretended there was a collision, you know, like an accident. Leonard positioned the car as if it had spun out of control, blocking the road. Then he sat and waited, a bulletproof vest under his clothes. The other car approached and slowed, trying to work out what was going on. Leonard gripped the wheel until his knuckles turned white. The triad sprung from the back of the car, screaming and brandishing the pistols. They pulled the other men to the ground, forcing them to lie spread-eagled. Then they opened the trunk, slung the bags of cash over their shoulders and jumped back into the Volvo. The triad screamed at him to drive. And then I spun the car around and headed straight for the Penang Bridge. And then on the way across the Penang Bridge, we threw all the bags out into the sea. 
They drove to the triad's village, a rural area. The gangsters took the local cash and left Leonard to look after the foreign currency and the guns. The haul was worth tens of thousands of dollars. They're smart. They gave me the loot. They gave me the guns. They said, you keep everything. Only when we need you, we'll call you. Leonard went back to work, spending his days on the docks. He paid off his debts, but he was followed by the gut-wrenching unease that he'd left a trail. Maybe it was a paranoia of the guilty, but his mind kept going back to the guns at his house. One day, Leonard was sitting in his car outside a restaurant, waiting for a friend. Before he could react, a police inspector slipped into the back seat. And then he got into the back seat, and they put the gun to the back of my head, and he said, you drive right now to police headquarters. He said, I'm going to blow your brains out. He said, if you don't follow my instructions. He was a young, little cocky, you know, inspector. He thought he was Rambo or something. <laughs> the police searched Leonard's house and found the guns, bulletproof vest, and foreign currency hidden in a secret compartment of a cupboard. He never learned the identity of who had ratted him out. I was held in detention without trial for 60 days. And I was locked up in the headquarters with all these hardcore criminals. Oh my gosh. The guys that were locked up with me, they were tortured. You could hear them screaming to come back, they couldn't walk, because you know, they'll get beaten by by cables under their feet, you know, the gang members, robbers, whatever they were. Almost before it began, Leonard's shipping career appeared over. We leave him in a dank jail from the Victorian era, a slot bucket for a toilet. A 21-year-old, basically a kid, in fear for his life. I was the scapegoat that got caught with the guns, and I took the hit for it. The police charged him for the possession of guns and 30 rounds of bullets, a capital crime in Malaysia. You know, that's sufficient for you to get hung. The death penalty, you know. Over the next quarter century, Leonard, a failed getaway driver, the noose hanging over his head, will transform into one of the world's most powerful military contractors. As a TV script, it would seem overcooked. Languishing in prison, he was working out his next angle. By the late 1980s, the US Navy had a problem in Asia. Leonard was positioning himself to benefit. Because I knew if I would build this, they're gonna come. And then, yes, rightfully they did. And that was the episode Paper Ships from the podcast Fat Leonard. The rest of the series is available wherever you get your podcasts. My thanks to Tom Wright, Project Brazen and PRX for letting us feature this episode. That's all for Foreign Policy Playlist. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe. And if you want to suggest a great podcast, please email us at podcasts at foreignpolicy.com. The show is hosted by me, Amy McKinnon, and is produced by Zimone Perez, Rob Sachs, and Rosie Julin. Our executive producer of podcasts is Dan Efron. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
Hi, I'm Anna Ferris, and I have this podcast fittingly titled Anna Ferris is Unqualified, where each week a different celebrity and I attempt to give relationship and dating advice. Recent co-hosts have included Matthew McConaughey. You got somebody you care about, you lost track of them. Go find out. Margaret Cho. Vacation <laughs> sex is always irresistible. Gwyneth Paltrow. I could make it all about them and not have to focus on my own problems. <laughs> and Seth Rogen. <laughs> so if you're wondering what your favorite celebrity or I would do in your situation, just listen and subscribe to Anna Ferris is Unqualified. Free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>